Welcome to the local edition, news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Coming up tonight, going to check in with the Federation of the Homeless. Talk about how this year has been in a year where we already have been covering the housing crisis in Sullivan County. Federation of Homeless coming up in the second half of the show. But first up, every Thursday we connect with the Times Union Hudson Valley Bureau for the latest news. Joining us on the phones, managing editor Philip Pantuso. Welcome back to the show, Philip. It's good to be with you. Let's start off with the big news from yesterday. I actually heard this on the evening news last night. There was a knife fight in Middletown. Yeah, this is a pretty troubling incident that um, we reported on yesterday at Monhagen Middle School in the Middletown School District. The school is actually, I think, in, in the town of Walkhill. Um, there was uh, a fight between two students yesterday, two 13-year-olds, one of whom ended up being stabbed. Um, there seems to have been some threats about this in the days leading up to the event. The school, the middle school was locked down, as was the elementary school for several hours on Wednesday. The elementary school is right next to the middle school. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was kind of just a scary incident. Um, the state police, um, Middletown police and Walker police all got involved. Um, and their initial investigation led to one 13 year old being arrested. Um, it's not really clear yet what he's been charged with, but, um, this is the person who reportedly, uh, did the stabbing. Um, the, the victim in this case, he, he's fine. Um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of long-term effects with him, as far as we know, at this point. And um, schools were, on Thursday, the day we're speaking today, um, resuming as usual with a three-hour delay. And um, there were going, there's going to be increased security today, tomorrow, probably into next week, too, um, at the entrance. Like, students are not going to be permitted to bring... Um, backpacks or large bags. Um, everything's going to be checked when they go in. Um, so yeah, a pretty, pretty scary incident. Wow. And a three hour delay before they even started school up. Was that just to get everything in order and deal with, with the changes just to be able to start the day safely? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. Like this, this all kind of started breaking yesterday, late morning, early afternoon. You know, the schools, as I mentioned earlier, were on lockdown for like a little while. They did, they did finish the rest of the school day on a normal schedule, although um, team sports competitions and other kind of extracurriculars after school at the middle school were postponed on Wednesday. Um, you know, we, we talked to a couple of parents um, who I think were understandably kind of shaken up by, by the news. There was a lot of kind of rumors circulating online as well. Um, I will give some credit to the school district. It was continuously publishing updates on its Facebook page and via email blast to try to keep parents informed and to dispel some of the misinformation that had started to circulate in the rumors. And then, um, you know, coincidentally, I guess, tonight there is a regularly scheduled school board meeting for the Middletown School District, which uh, is likely to probably... <laughs> be primarily focused on the events of Wednesday and the response and what the school will be doing going forward. So we're going to have a story about that tomorrow morning. And I expect you at that school board meeting, they're going to be hearing from local residents and parents. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it will be a pretty feisty one. 
Okay, well then, uh, I'll, I'll be looking forward to, to see what comes out of that. And of course, just seeing how they do with, deal with this moving forward. Um, in another story, you're talking about a cyber attack, cyber attack that hit Health Alliance hospitals in Kingston and Margaretville. Uh, what's the fallout of this cyber attack? Yeah, so this was an attack that was, um, I think, first made public in late October um, by Westchester Medical Center Health Network, which owns the Health Alliance of the Hudson Valley uh, and a number of other hospitals across the Hudson Valley and Catskills. Uh, the Health Alliance Hospital in Kingston and then the Margaretville Hospital in, uh, in Margaretville and their residential care nursing center, also in Margaretville, were uh, subject to a cyber attack. So back in October when this happened, uh, it wasn't really clear what the scope and scale of the attack was. Um, the, the hospital really just said that its information technology systems were compromised. It temporarily shut those down, and it diverted ambulances for about 24 hours from the hospitals. And since then, um, myself and, and other local journalists have been trying to get a little bit more information about what happened. Well, um, a, a law firm that Westchester Medical Center retained to do an investigation, released its findings earlier this week, um, and they're pretty alarming. So what they discovered is that that cyber attack, um, hackers actually had unauthorized access to sensitive patient data for nearly two months. So by the time uh, this incident was discovered in October, um, the hackers had already made their initial breakthrough uh, in, in on August 18th, they said. Um, the incident was discovered October 12th, and it seems like they no longer had access by October 13th. Um, and the data, the sensitive patient data that they had access to includes just about everything <laughs> that a hospital, just about all the data that a hospital has on its patients. That includes names, addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, lab results, medications and other treatment information, health insurance information, financial information. Basically, it sounds like entire patient files and financial info. So pretty alarming. Um, the Health Alliance said that it's going to mail notification letters to all the patients whose information may have been compromised. And it is also offering free credit monitoring and identity theft protection services to folks whose social security numbers may have been leaked. So if you or a loved one, you know, have been treated at that hospital uh, or at the Kingston Hospital or, or the Margaretville facilities um, and your data may have been compromised, definitely keep an eye out in the mail for um, a letter from Health Alliance. Oh, my goodness. And it what are you hearing from from law enforcement and how high up does law enforcement go just because i i this sounds familiar this sounds like the sort of thing that we've heard are happening to other hospitals cyber straight up cyber attacks ransom cyber attacks um is is like homeland security or anybody involved uh, to help out here not that we are aware of at this time um you know, I think because the situation is under control, law enforcement is not at least actively involved in this specific scenario. Um, you know, we reported back when this happened in October that it was going to be investigated by local law enforcement authorities. I'm not really sure what the status of that is at the moment. Um, you know, they, they were also going to do 
uh, the, well, the health network said that they were going to hire this independent cybersecurity firm. That's the report that came out yesterday. So it's unclear if there will be another law enforcement report that's going to come out as well, um, or if that's if their findings kind of informed what um, what the cybersecurity firm did. Um, they did not immediately answer questions uh, that we sent to them yesterday. Mm. Um, but yeah, as you know, it's been. There have been a kind of a number of these attacks in, in New York and sort of across the U.S. Um, in recent months. So it seems to be a thing that, uh, that I guess, these hospital systems uh, that have huge, you know, server networks that, you know, are sometimes, I think, Westchester Medical Center runs like 13 different facilities. Um, they're going to have to be more aware of this type of thing for sure. And now we've got, uh, well, there's a Westchester County home uh, whose backyard collapsed onto train tracks in October. Um, have people looked into this? What happened? So listeners might remember um, back in October, uh, you know, after one of the many kind of heavy rainfalls that, uh, that we had in this region in summer and, and fall, there was a mudslide in Briarcliff Manor in Westchester County in the backyard of a home that overlooks the train tracks there that are used by Amtrak and Metro North that sent something like 900 tons of debris down the hillside over the tracks. The trains were significantly affected for only about 24 hours, somewhat miraculously. It's kind of amazing that they got, if you look at the photos, you know, it looks totally devastated. So it's kind of crazy that they were able to repair it so quickly. A story that we have exclusively that published earlier this week is um, looking at some satellite images that were first flagged by a geologist in the UK, of all places, that show that there's a significant, like, flaw in the backyard. It's, it's unclear what it is, but basically right at the spot that eventually collapsed down onto the train tracks down the hillside, there is this long mark that appears in satellite images. It first appears in the spring of 2022, um, but the most the the most recent image before that is October of 2020, when the mark is not there. So it shows up anywhere sometime between October of 2020 and April of 2022. It's it's not clear if it's a crack or or what. And and um, our reporter who worked on the story spoke with a number of geologists uh, about kind of the increasing threat of, of landslides and mudslides, um, especially given climate change and what that what effects that might have on insurance. Um, because, you know, the Metro or the Metropolitan Transportation Authority has footed the bill so far for all these costs, but they have said that they are going to try to get the homeowner to actually do the repairs because this was a private property that collapsed down onto the train. Kind of complicating matters here is that Sometime in that period, in 2021, the house sold. So we're not sure precisely who owned it when this, when this line first appeared. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that by May of this year, there's a satellite image showing that this, this flaw, this, this mark in the backyard is covered with grass. So we don't know if that's intentional or, or what. But it's certainly, you know, if you look at these images, it's just it's wild to kind of scroll through and see photos from 2020, where there's no indication of any problem. 2022, where there's this huge visible mark, and it's it's visible in several photos. So it's not just like a mistake with 
this one photo. There's different images from that month that show different angles that all show this big kind of jagged line running through the backyard. And then by about a year later, that mark is gone. It's at least not visible in the photos. And five months after that, <laughs> right at that spot, the backyard collapses onto the train tracks. So there's more investigating to be done. Um, I would expect that there's going to be uh, or that the courts are going to get involved with regards to who's liable for the payment here. I mean, the cleanup of the debris and uh, the reparation of the tracks, you know, is a cost that run into the many millions of dollars. Um, you know, that's a lot for a single homeowner to bear. That would, of course, I'm, I think, go to insurance. They're going to want to try to, you know, squiggle out of that if they can. Um, and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the MTA, is going to try to get as much money back as it can as well for, you know, for the for the, its expenses in cleaning this up. So it's kind of a crazy story. Um, and, you know, it's only going this these kinds of landslides are only going to get um, worse, I think, as there's increasing rainfall. You know, we, we had like near record. Uh, totals of rainfall this summer in many parts of the region just a couple of months before this landslide happened. There was the huge flooding that also, you know, affected the train tracks. So a really interesting and, and, and kind of alarming story. Like we talked about before, this is going to become something that people need to think about now. Homeowners, you know, need to think about things like is your tree crossing the property line and co- might cause damage. Now you got to think about things like landslides you know due to climate change so my goodness yeah. uh, we've only got a couple minutes left but there are two stories as wondering if you can give us an update on because there's things that we've covered before and and want to update people first was this tide wall kill supervisor race that we we just heard about uh, a week or two ago it, it has been decided it, this was like a dead even tie we talked about um how did it get decided yeah so a judge ruled to um there were two ballots that were being contested. The judge ruled to count one of them and not count the other. So that gave the incumbent supervisor, George Serrano, the victory. Uh, it doesn't sound like the, the challenger in this case, a Democratic councilman named Neil Meyer, it doesn't sound like he's going to challenge that ruling. Um, so, um, so yeah, it, 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 was a de- it was a dead tie, and, uh, and this judge's ruling is going to tip it to uh, to Serrano by a net of two votes. Um, the two ballots here that were being contested, one of them, there was an issue with whether a mark voting for Serrano, the incumbent, was valid. The judge ruled that, yes, it was. And then the other was whether a ballot that seemed to vote for Neil Meyer, that's at least what he was claiming, was valid. That ballot had writing all over it. Um, it was kind of unclear like there was a mark for Meyer, but there was writing and other names written all over the ballot, and the judge tossed that one. So that's negative one to Meyer, plus one to Serrano. So by two votes, it goes to Serrano. Um, yep, that's right. So um, and it doesn't look like there's going to be a challenge there. So so he will serve another term. All right. So uh, all the stories we talked about are online at timesunion.com. We're talking to Hudson Valley Bureau Managing Editor Philip Pantuso. Philip, thanks for joining us once again. Always good to be with you. Take care. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Sullivan County Federation for the Homeless. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local.
Hey there, I'm Cece, an intern here at Radio Catskill. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. From all of us at Radio Catskill, we wish you a safe and festive holiday season and a happy new year. The idea of home is so fundamental, so foundational to our sense of security. And yet people in cities across America right now are living in fear of losing that security. I'm Kai Wright. Join me live on Notes from America for an intimate look inside the program that was supposed to provide more of us with a safety net, public housing, availability, affordability, and what private developers have to do with it. Sunday evening at 6, live on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the local edition, news and information, keeping you connected. I'm your host, Jason Dole. One out of every 10 households in New York faces food insecurity. Nationally and within New York State, households with children are more likely to experience food insecurity. And in Sullivan County, the Sullivan County Federation for the Homeless actively works each year to address and reduce this gap. Earlier, Patricio Rabayo of Radio Catskills spoke with Kathy Kreider, the director of Sullivan County Federation for the Homeless, to talk about the year that they've had and the year ahead. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the transition we made. You may or may not know that we had been serving food outside at, from a shed, basically, since COVID hit. And we did not come back inside for full service until February of this past year 2023 um it was very that was a great change for us to be able to welcome folks back inside we were then we also had we had stopped our clothing distribution during the time we were only serving food outside because we just didn't have a way to manage that thing is that we couldn't have folks inside and so we have reinvigorated our clothing project it's a little different than it used to be we used to be able to have space to have it just kind of set up all the time, and we had a couple of volunteers that were really dedicated to making that happen, but now our space has changed. So now that we've come inside, we're using our shed outside to store the clothing. And um, my sister, actually, Ella Newman, I'll just give a little plug. She runs a friend in need on Facebook, and she's been a steady volunteer for us for many years and she has been managing the clothing. So we opened it up a couple times a week when it was warm out. We were setting it all up outside. Uh, now that it's cold, we have to bring it in you know, a little bit at a time. And she's been a little under the weather. So we haven't been operating over the last few weeks. And consequently, we always have hats and gloves and things that we can make available to folks, socks. Those things we keep in the offices and they're available at any time. But the clothing has been a little trickier. I just want folks to know that because over the last couple of weeks, since Ellen has not been able to be here to get stuff in and out, um, we have kind of suspended receiving clothing right now. I know that's hard to hear because folks really want to give and there is certainly a need, but we can't manage any more clothing right now. The shed is at full capacity. So just to let you know that, but that's a good thing. And so pantry, we are also reinstituted our veterans pantry again, which we didn't really suspend it during COVID, but we found that everybody just blended in together and there really wasn't a way to separate the two, so we didn't do that. But now we are back to running our – we run a weekly pantry. We used to do two before COVID, so everything's kind of before and after. 
So we now, since COVID hit, we have run a weekly pantry to make sure we can fulfill the need, and we have continued to do so, although we are back inside. So our veterans pantry is from 11.30 to 12 every Friday, and then our regular pantry is from 12 to 1. And there is a sign-up for that, but it's very painless. I assure everyone it's very painless, but we do ask people to register for that. Um, As far as the vets, they just need to show a 214 or a military ID of some sort. So that's really good. So we serve probably veterans families. We're running not too many, maybe about 15 a week, and it's growing a little bit. But our regular pantry, we're averaging about 100 to 125 families a week, depending toward the end of the month when things get a little bit tighter. We generally see a few more. But that's a lot of families. Those are not individuals. Those are households. So about 100 to 125 households a week. Our soup kitchen, our community soup kitchen is open uh, for sit-down service again Monday through Thursday. Um, Breakfast is mostly continental. We do a hot breakfast once a week. And breakfast is probably about 15 to 20 folks daily. And lunch is probably, we're doing about probably 50 meals out of there every day for lunch. That's great that it is back indoors again. I remember when I visited the Federation a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and we talked about the soup kitchen. One of the things you mentioned was when folks came in, they were able to socialize with the other folks that were there for the soup kitchen. And I'm assuming that since you had this outdoor space during the pandemic, that was lost. Now that it's back indoors, do you see that socialization happening again? That is a great question because, yes, socialization for sure, is something that we lost during COVID. Folks that, I'm not saying that they didn't have a reason to be here or need to be here, but they also got to sit with other people and have a cup of coffee and talk over breakfast or know that they would bump into John or Jim or Sue or whoever at lunch and sit with them. And yes, uh, especially for our older kind of seniors that mostly don't get around that much, perhaps they're on fixed incomes and they utilize the kitchen uh, that is a way for them. So yes, you made a good point. Since we have opened back up, I am seeing a lot more of that type of folks coming through the door, for sure. Now, is the Federation doing anything special for the holiday season? Yes. Yeah, so I'll back up just a tiny bit. We did, for the first time, do a sit-down meal inside at Thanksgiving, which we've been doing them to go from 2020 up until this year. So that was exciting for us. We did give away over 200 turkeys. So I think that anybody who actually had a place to go to cook a turkey went or brought it to a family or whatever they did to be cooked. And the rest of the folks that we saw here on Thanksgiving, it was a little smaller number than we usually see. And I think maybe because people weren't sure if we were going to do it inside again, even though we advertised it. But the folks that were here on Thanksgiving Day really wanted to be here, needed to be here, didn't have that other place to go. And that's why we were always so happy to do it on that day. And certainly some of our volunteers also could not be with family members for whatever their reasons and such. And so they come and give up their time on Thanksgiving Day, and they have a great place to go. We were very lucky this year to have Paul Keene and Debbie Fisher, Fisher and Keene, if you're familiar, came and played uh, some music during the holiday meal, and as did a friend of ours, Jack, whose last name is escaping me at the moment, but he played saxophone. It was just beautiful. We had raffles. It was really lovely. So now, fast forwarding to the holidays, one thing we do is we have like an adoptive family program, not a family, but kids. Uh, so kids that are 12 and under 
that are signed up. We have different organizations and groups and individuals who choose a list and try to fulfill a few gifts for each child on that list. So that's been going on since probably the beginning of November. We've been doing that. And the culmination will be the week before Christmas when we just people will be picking up (laughs) from all over. It gets kind of nutty in here. It kind of looks Santa's workshop on steroids, I think. But this year, again, we're going back inside for Christmas, and that'll be on Christmas Eve day. Uh, we Prior to that, we've been doing everything to go over the last few years. And although Santa did make an appearance, and again, Fisher and Keen were very lovely. They brought their music bus and played music outdoors. It really wasn't the same as everybody being able to come inside and sit down and join together. So we're going to be doing that. Christmas Eve day, the sitting is 12.30 to 1.30, and we are asking people if they can either stop in and sign up or call in and let us know that they would like to come with their family because there is limited space, and we probably will not be able to manage a second sitting as we have sometimes done in the past. So very important that folks sign up for that. And, yeah, so we're looking forward to that. Kathy, if folks want to get involved, how can they? So they can call 845-794-2604. They can speak to me. I'm Kathy. They can go on our um, website, which is uh, w.s, like Sam, c, like cat, federation.org. We do have a donate button on there for PayPal if folks wanted to donate that way. If they would like to send us a check, our, it would be Sullivan County Federation for the Homeless, P.O. Box 336, Monticello. New York, 12701. And you no, know, I don't want to, I'm, I forgot one thing that I really wanted to share with you. And there is a group of lovely folks, a woman named Chris Spinner, spearheaded an, an initiative. It started back in the middle of the summer. And she called together musicians and local artists from the county to come together and do a We Are the World type of project. But it was done different song. It was done to, um, uh, love is the answer and we all i actually participated in it i was in the chorus and we all practiced quite hard and then the center for discovery was nice enough to let us use the uh, michael ricci barn to record in and we were able to put this out for to be bought you can purchase it. it's called sullivan sings was the group of us that came together steve from steve's music center was very uh forgive the pun, instrumental (laughs) in putting this together. And I can't tell you just all the folks that were involved. It was a beautiful initiative. And there's a place you can go called Bandcamp, and you can order Love is the Answer. Um, And it's by Sullivan Sings. Digital track is $5. All the money, all the revenue goes to the Federation for the Homeless. And it was just an amazing effort on everybody's part. And we went last week to open mic night at Dutch's in Rock Hill, and we performed it. Most of us were there, and it was just a great time and a beautiful feeling to be a part of it and a lovely way say happy holidays to someone if you like. So there is that. I think that's awesome that we had sort of a We Are the World type of thing happen here locally, and it's benefiting the Federation for the Homeless. That's awesome that this was able to be even put together. And you said it's available for purchase, right? Yes. I. It's called Sullivan Sings. The place that 
facilitates the payments is called Bandcamp. That's great. Again, like I said, it happened here in Sullivan County. Kathy, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on you want folks to know? We'd just like you to know, well, you personally and you to anyone that's listening to this right now, we just want to say thank you. We just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who in some form or fashion, whatever that is, contributes in some way to allow us to keep serving the folks we serve and keep these doors open. So thank you all very much. And whatever you're celebrating, have a wonderful and joyous holiday. And you too, Kathy. Thank you for all you do for the Federation for the Homeless. It's amazing what you do year in and year out. Couldn't do it without you guys, that's for sure. So thank you. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Robayo. Thank you, Patricio, for that interview. Um, also remind you that last night we talked to Marty Colavito of Sullivan Allies Leading Together and also Cornell Cooperative Extension. And he was talking about the dire needs of food insecurity and housing and homelessness issues in Sullivan County. If you missed that interview, do check it out online at WJFFradio.org. Sign up for the local edition podcast wherever you get podcasts from and never miss another edition of the local edition. That's it for me. I've been your host, Jason Dole. We'll be back tomorrow evening to do it again. Got the daily up next. This is Radio Catskill. Support comes from Country House Realty, a boutique Catskills real estate brokerage with a new office in Livingston Manor. Country House Realty, exceptional spaces in beautiful places. More at countryhouserealty.com. From Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the gateway to the Catskill Park, LivingstonManorNY.com. And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania.